Hello and welcome to the Hidden Why podcast. This is a replay episode, my interview with Lisa Feldman Barrett. We talk about her book, How Emotions Are Made. This is a really awesome interview, guys, and a great book too. Check it out. Welcome, guys, to the Hidden Why podcast replay episode. It is that time of the year where I shut down and go away and don't actually release any new episodes, so there you go. But this is a cracker. It's a really good episode. It's my interview with Lisa Feldman Barrett. I talk with her about her book, How Emotions Are Made, The Secret Life of the Brain. It's really quite in-depth at points in this and a little bit over my head, but I absolutely loved it, and I loved her book too, How Emotions Are Made. It was a fantastic read. Guys, you can check it all out at thehiddenwide.com. Type in 867. I've actually done a book review of How Emotions Are Made. I've done this interview, and there's also a part two interview with Lisa as well. So check it out at episode 867. All the links will be there, and I really hope you uh, get something out of it. Guys, just going into the new year, I hope you're having a great uh, festive season. Next year on The Hidden Why, things are going to be changed up a little bit. If you want to know what is happening and what I'm planning, please go to my episode um, from a couple of weeks ago. It's episode 867. This is 867. Uh, but it was a couple of weeks ago, and it's called The Hidden Why in 2020. So check that out. It'll be a couple of podcasts um, back in your catalogue. Uh, what I'm doing next year, changing things up to keep things real. I've got a busy schedule in my real life, my work life, uh, but I still love doing this, and I'm bringing back the 30-minute segment. Guys, I hope you enjoy this interview. I hope you enjoy future interviews. I hope you have a great Christmas. Happy New Year, and we'll talk soon. Cheers. G'day ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Hidden Why podcast, Lee Manutzi here, pumped and excited to have you here with me today. I am joined by Lisa Feldman Barrett. Lisa, how are you? I'm terrific. Thanks for having me on your show. It's a fantastic to have you here, an honor. I, I am excited about your book, How Emotions Are Made, The Secret Life of the Brain. It's certainly a topic that I'm very fond of and uh, you're the expert there, so I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, seeing what you can tell us, seeing what um, you can share to help us in our lives, uh, you know, to move us towards more passion and purpose and, and freedom and fulfillment and happiness. So Lisa, tell us a little bit about where you are at the moment. Are you, you're in the States, I believe? Yeah, I'm in Boston. Boston. Okay. Afternoon there. Have you had your lunch? <laughs> it's actually pretty much uh, early evening, I would say. The sun is still out, but it's setting. You're coming into summer there as well. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. um, okay. What did you have for dinner? Did you have, did you have a nice meal? I did actually. My husband grilled uh, hamburgers, which is something, it's one of our uh, things that we like to do at the beginning of uh, the summer. And uh, I made a lovely salad and we had grilled vegetables. It was very delightful. Sounds lovely. Absolutely. So that's good. You're uh, full of energy and ready to go then. So let's jump right into it. You've, you've just published a book. I believe it's just published. Uh, How Emotions Are Made, which is a really exciting work that you've, you've um, produced here. I've just started reading it myself, haven't got all the way through it, of course, but um, yeah, it sounds very informative and very well researched. You're obviously an expert in your field. Is this something that's always fascinated you, the, um, the emotions, the human emotions that we exist with? Actually, I fell into this topic when I was in graduate school. So I think my interest in emotion was pretty much like everybody else. I was kind of curious to know, you know, how to have a maximize my emotional well-being, how to have a happy life and so on. When I was in graduate school, I was actually studying something else to do with self-esteem. And I was using measures of emotion that weren't quite working the way that I expected them to. Mm. And the way, the way that, um, that scientists had, you know, write about emotion uh, the measures weren't working to, to measure emotion in the way that scientists were writing about it. So I thought, that it would be really straightforward for me to, instead of asking people how they feel, I could just find an objective measurement of how they felt, and then that would solve the whole problem. And so I thought, well, this will take me a couple of months to figure out because, you know, everybody knows that different emotions have different uh, facial expressions. So when you're happy, you smile. When you're angry, you scowl. When you're sad, you pout. Everyone knows these emotions are universal. Everyone knows that your body changes in particular ways when you're fearful, your heart rate goes up. When you're angry, your blood pressure goes up and so on. Mm-hmm. And so I, I thought it'd be really straightforward. And it, it turned out to be not so straightforward. And in fact, every 
thing I, every measure I went after that was supposedly a fingerprint, a universal fingerprint of emotion turned out not to be. So turns out people, and if you think about it for a minute, this makes a lot of sense. People mm. do many things with their faces when they scowl. I mean, when they're uh, angry, right? So sometimes, uh, certainly people scowl in anger, but sometimes they cry in anger. Sometimes they smile in anger. Yeah, sometimes they laugh in the face of anger. Um, people think, do many di different things. Mm. That, that's and, stereotypical sort of the view that we have of emotions uh, more than anything rather than uh, a true measure. Exactly. And it turns out that every claim that had been made in the scientific literature about a f biological or behavioral fingerprint for emotion turned out to be um, false. So uh, there are no facial movements or body changes or patterns of brain activity that uniquely identify any emotion category. Right. People smile when they're sad, they cry when they're angry, they scream when they're happy. Variability is the norm. So it's not the case that there's nothing meaningful It's in what people do when they're emotional. It's just that there are many patterns for, say, anger. There are many things that your body does, many behaviors that you can take. And so amidst all this variability, how is it that we feel angry in the blink of an eye? We can, right. to us, it feels as if we recognize anger in other people, uh, the way we read words on a page. How is it that, that this can happen when there's no single biological marker? And even more so, how is it that there are some cultures that have no concept for anger? What does a scowl mean Right in a in a language that uh, in a culture where the language has no concept for anger. So I just was really fascinated by these questions. Yeah, me too. I um, sort of analyze myself and my emotions, and, and it's something that I've reflected on over the last few years. You know where they come from and arise from, and and I couldn't sort of pinpoint them um, to anything. Then and, and perhaps you'll give us some clarity on this today. But uh, for me, it was you know my emotions seem to arise at, at sort of at a level of randomness um, and it used to be due to my thoughts I always thought that my thoughts were the source of my emotions and and I sort of believe that the, my thoughts are uh, influenced by my what I'm exposed to my past my present what's in front of me uh, the stimulus in the environment that I'm around um, and I, I could be totally wrong with that but yeah I'm, I'm very fascinated to find out where they come from and I, and I absolutely can understand what you're saying that you know my emotions and how I deal with my emotions or express my emotions certainly vary from time to time um, and also vary amongst you know my friends and family and, and their, how they express their emotions. Well, I think the key thing to understand here is that even though it feels to us uh, as if we are sometimes hijacked by our emotions, right? They come on uh, sort of suddenly without warning and they feel as if they take us over in some way and control our actions and make us do stuff that we would rather not do or think mm. things that we would rather not think. In fact, it's not really the case that emotions shine forth from the face uh, or arise from the uh, chaos of your body's inner systems. They don't issue from a specific part of the brain. And there are no scientific innovations that are going to miraculously reveal to us what the biological fingerprint is for any emotion, because emotions aren't built in waiting to be uh, triggered. They are actually made by us, right? We don't recognize emotions kind of automatically reading um, people's faces in a way that is built in and universal. Uh, we construct our own emotional experiences and we construct the perceptions of other people's emotions on the spot as needed in a very automatic way through a complex interplay of systems in our brain. Mm. So, you know, hum humans, we are not at the mercy of some mythical emotion circuits that are buried deep inside uh, the animalistic parts of our brain. Each of us has a brain that is equipped with a set of kind of purpose systems like ingredients that you would find in your kitchen. And exactly in the same way that, uh, you know, flour, water and, and say salt can be used to make all sorts of recipes and even some non-food recipes like glue, your brain has a set of networks and these networks um, basically uh, can combine with different recipes to produce different thoughts, different memories, different perceptions, and different emotions. Right. So in a very real way, uh, we are the architects of our own experience. To us, it doesn't feel like that because most of this construction is happening pretty automatically and under the hood. But once you understand what your brain is doing, 
that gives you a whole, it equips you with a whole set of strategies to be much more in control uh, of your own, uh, to be the architect of your own uh, experience, especially your emotional experience. So ra- rather than sort of just being a reactive to to these feelings, these emotions that sort of arise, we can actually start responding to them more appropriately? Well, what's really interesting is that even though to you it feel or to me it feels like when we have an emotion that we're reacting to something in the world in fact that is really not how our brains are wired our mm. brains don't react to events in the world your brain my brain everybody's brain is predicting not reacting okay. your brain is constantly guessing what's going to happen next and these guesses these micro predictions are the basis of your emotions. And this happens entirely outside of your awareness. So let me, I can, can give you an example. Context, yeah. yeah. So I can give you an example. Um, right now, to you, it feels like you're listening to what I'm saying and you're reacting to the words that I'm, that I'm saying. Yeah. But in fact, based on your many years of uh, experience with the English language, your brain is using these sounds to predict every single word that comes out of my mouth. And in fact, if I had said some other word, like not my mouth, but maybe my ear or some other part of my anatomy, that would have been surprising to you. And the reason why it's surprising is that your brain actually isn't just uh, sitting, listening, reacting to my words. In fact, your brain is predicting each set of sounds. It's predicting what the next set of sounds are going to be. And in a similar way, your brain predicts all sensations, including the sensations from your body. And these predictions actually explain uh, where the sensations come from. So, just to give you another example, like if you're playing baseball, for example, to you, it feels like, you know, you're looking at the ball and then you uh, watch the ball come towards you and you swing, you, you, you take a, uh, you pick up the bat and you swing it. But in fact, that's actually not what's happening because, you know, it would take too long after you've consciously seen the ball to actually mount a motor response, pick up the bat and swing it. Instead, so we your acting, brain, we're acting before. Yes, we exactly. It. Is, that, exactly. is that the subconscious doing that based on, you know, past memory experience, et cetera? Yes, exactly. So this is all happening outside your awareness. So the way to think about it is that your brain is a big storehouse yeah. of past experience yeah. and it's using past experience to guess what's going to happen next. So when you're faced with a batter, with a, a pitcher, let's say, yeah. Your, your brain is, based on the pitcher's movements, making a guess at where the ball is going to be in a moment from now. And that guess includes um, starting to prepare the image of the, the, the ball and also prepares to, to swing at where the ball, where your brain is predicting the ball is going to be in a moment from now. So a prediction is actually where certain parts of your brain change the firing of neurons in other parts of the brain before the sensations actually arise. So you start to swing at the where you're predicting the ball is going to be well before you're aware that you're about to make a movement. Your brain's already preparing the movement. And this is how people play baseball. This is why, you know, baseball is a it seems like it's this very straightforward sport, but in fact it's a it's really a game where the batter uh, is trying to guess what the pitcher is going to do, and the pitcher is really trying to psych the batter out. Yeah, but and it's it's quite complex, um, perhaps for me anyway. But if if my brain's preparing and trying to predict everything that's going to happen, I'm still I'm still based on that preparation, uh, reacting to to that information, aren't I? Well, I think try to think of it this way: in the traditional view of how the brain works, yeah. your neurons are off. They're stimulated uh, to, to fire by a stimulus in the world. Some, something happens in the world, and then the neurons fire, and then you react. Okay. But that's actually not what's happening. What's happening is based on what is in the world and in your body right now, your brain is predicting what's going to happen in a moment from now. So it's kind of using the moment before, sort of the immediate past, 
to make a prediction about the immediate future, which becomes your present. So right now, as I speak, your brain, each moment, your brain is predicting what I'm, what sounds I'm going to speak next based on your vast experience with the English language. Okay. And in, in the same way, your brain isn't just predicting the sensations from the world. It's also predicting the sensations from the body. Uh, and it's trying to explain those sensations. So there's a dependency between each moment, but what you feel in a moment from now is dependent on what you felt a moment before, but it's not really strictly reaction. Hmm. Really what's happening is in this moment right now, your brain is predicting what you're going to see and hear and taste and feel in the next moment. And then it starts to actually change the firing of its own sensory and motor neurons. And then it awaits for the, the sensory input from the world and from the body that either confirms or corrects its predictions. So by the time you're aware of it, to you, it just all feels like a reaction. But in fact, your brain has been predicting all along. So it's, it's prepared for this moment that I'm in right now. Um, now, if, if it's prepared for this moment and trying to predict the best it can about, you know, what's going to happen, and, and I assume for most of our lives, um, you know, the brain's pretty good at predicting what's going to happen next. But often, too, there's things that, that don't happen. When there's a, a disalignment with what the brain predicts and what actually happens, what does that mean? I mean, does that change how we're predicting the next moment? I guess it does. You, yeah. So we have a special name for, for this in psychology. We call it learning. Uh-huh. So when you, when you, uh, right, exactly. So when your brain makes a prediction, it's starting to change the firing of its own sensory and motor neurons. So it's getting you ready to see something, hear something and, and, and to do something. Um, if you've predicted poorly, then your brain has a couple of choices. It can correct your prediction. So it can take in the error of prediction. That is, it can take in the new sensory information that you didn't anticipate, which we call prediction error, and you can learn it so that you can predict better the next time. So that's one thing it can do. Another thing that it can do is it can ignore the sensory input. It can say, hey, I'm just going to go with my prediction and I'm going to ignore what's in the world. This is how people see things that aren't there. This is how people hear things that aren't there. This is how people, um, you know, taste things that aren't there. So for example, you know, in the book, I talk about this party that we threw for my daughter when she was 12 years old. Nice. Mm. Uh, you know, it was a disgust party where we did things like, uh, had the kids eat, um, you know, I, I sort of made a pizza with um, doctored to look like it was fuzzy and green and moldy. I served um, grape juice, white grape juice in medicine uh, urine cups. And I tell you something, I knew it was grape juice, but when I was pouring it into these urine cups, I seriously smelled urine. I, they smelled like pee to me, even though, uh, you know, I knew what it was. Um, uh, we made, so we made, predicting. yeah, yeah. We made uh, vomit jello, you know, with um, peach colored jello that had little bits of uh, um, vegetables chopped up in it and um, which was really <laughs> gross. And, but the, but the real, um, and the kids were, you know, gagging and this and that, but the, the real, the real, uh, yeah, <laughs> the real uh, star of the show was we had a, a smelling game where we took baby food, uh, like, um, you know, ground up, um, lamb or ground up carrots or sweet potatoes. And we artfully placed it in, um, diapers in disposable diapers to look like poo. And then we had the kids hold up the, their noses, take a good deep whiff and try to identify the food. And many of these kids had a full on like full body gag. You know, you can't, not the kind that you can fake because what they were smelling was poo. So, so if you, you know, prepared that yourself and you did that activity, your it was actually horrible, but you, you'd think you, you'd you would think. have been predicting, you would have gone, yep, yeah, I already know this. And your brain would have been predicting. And then when you opened the nappy and smelled it, you would have gone, yeah, I know it's baby food. So you would have been sort of prepared for, for. Yeah, you'd think so. But sometimes the sensory inputs, so um, or? 
Well, no, it's that that your predictions are so powerful that you can't overcome them with the sensory input from the world. Like, for example, if you ever had a song that goes through your head, that's so, you know, you just cannot get it out of your head no matter what you do. Even when you try humming another song, it just doesn't work. You yeah. just have this song. Well, that's a, <laughs> so those are predictions that are not being corrected by the world, right? You, you've got this thing going through your head. You can't help but... Um, but uh, hear the song in your head. And there are lots of examples like this that we experience every day. What's interesting is that people don't realize where they come from. They come from, uh, you know, having a predicting brain. Mm, mm. And that's well based on our experience, based on our environment that we're in? Pretty much. So when, a, when an infant is born, yep. an infant brain doesn't look like a miniature adult brain. It's a brain that is waiting a set of wiring instructions from the world. So infant brains wire themselves to the physical and social uh, surroundings that wow. they grow up in. And wow. so they, they're learning. Uh, so for little babies, it's sort of a prediction error most of the time, right? They don't have a lot to predict with. They haven't learned very much yet. And so they're learning a lot. They're their brains are bootstrapping into, you know, the brains are bootstrapping into themselves uh, a lot of experience that babies then learn to predict with. So yeah. this is why young kids, you know, seem to have no fear and stuff like that, I assume. Exactly, exactly. I mean, you know, there's these, there's the, the scientists who will tell you that, um, you know, snakes and spiders and so on are innate fear stimuli that, you know, when you, everybody, you know, when you see a snake, uh, has a, an automatic, very innate, embedded fear response. But I can tell you, first of all, that, you know, a third of the monkeys, when they're faced with, with a snake, don't, um, don't show a fear. They don't, they don't look afraid. They don't, they don't act afraid. They're actually act curious. Yeah. My own daughter, my, my husband used to take her when she was a little girl on bug hunts. Uh -huh. And, um, she's completely fascinated by snakes and by spiders and by bugs and never showed any fear whatsoever because it's that weird, wasn't that, her, hmm. that wasn't her experience. Mm -hmm. And also she didn't grow up in Australia where, you know, you have to be really careful what you pick <laughs> up. Right. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my daughter's, and that just comes from having kids yourself, I guess, but I, I can see my daughter, she's, um, one's five and she'll pick up maggots and stuff like that. Um, with no problems, <laughs> I just yeah, can't, yeah. I can't handle it. Well, um, when we visited, when we visited the uh, Australia, when my daughter was eight, we had to really. We went to the Great Barrier Reef, and we had to really instruct her not to pick up shells on the on the beach because some of them could be. Even though it was very low probability that that you know one of them would. Have an, have an animal inside to sting her. She was really, that's always what she's done. You know, she's always picked up shells, always picked up rocks. She's you had really, she had no fear whatsoever in that regard. And that's because her previous learning history did not contain things for her to be afraid of in that way. Okay. And this is really fascinating. And I, I think this has a lot to do with, with what I talk about in the podcast and really helping people deal with change and, and transformations because I myself and, and everyone, I guess, you know, we've grown up and we've been conditioned in such a way that it's just so automatic that it can be so challenging for us to find, um, you know, the strength to, to come over these things and change our, our ways and our, our predictive, I guess, mentality, if, if you'd call it that. Um, so certainly it relates a lot to that and it explains why it's so hard to reverse engineer how we've been conditioned um, over that time. Is there any truth to um, things that have been passed on through our genes, such as, you know, the fear of spiders, because I always thought that, yeah, perhaps if someone um, centuries ago, you know, stumbled upon a spider and was, you know, bitten by it, that that sort of um, carried on through uh, through their genes over, over a period of, you know, millennia or whatever. Is that, is there any truth to that? Not exactly in that way. So what you just described is uh, a kind of Lamarckian evolution where if you acquire a fear to something that it will be somehow encoded in your genes and passed on to the next generation. That's a, a kind of a pre-Darwinian um, before. Mechanism? No, the idea it that's not really how evolution works. Oh. So uh, do we, you know, have our brains evolved? Absolutely. Did they evolve to um, give us adaptations? Absolutely. But uh, emotions are not baked into the brain. It's, there is no fear circuit in your brain, no anger circuit in your brain. There's no uh, disgust circuit in your brain that evolved in some animal long ago and was passed down to us. That is a 
that's a somewhat outdated understanding of how evolution works. So the way evolution works, if you go back to Darwin, for example, what he clearly showed, one of his great innovations, is that a biological category like a species is a highly variable uh, grouping of highly variable individuals. So, for example, think about, you know, a cocker spaniel. There is no one perfect cocker spaniel. There, in fact, cocker spaniels vary in all sorts of ways. They have some have thick coats, some have thin, some have longer tails, some have shorter, some have longer noses, some have shorter. So there's a lot of variability. Yeah. Before Darwin, people thought that variability was error, somehow, you know, problems, um, uh, and that there was one kind of ideal um, dog, yeah. you know. Hmm. Um, similarly, well, what Darwin showed was that that variability is is really useful because uh, it helps. That variability means that in certain environments, certain dogs will succeed better. They will, they'll thrive and they'll be able to reproduce more and their offspring will survive for longer. So variability is really important to an adaptive system. Right. So in the same way, it's not that you have one anger that your brain is capable of making because you have some kind of uh, anger circuit baked in, your brain can make a whole variety of different angers. And it, so it, it, it can select which anger that it, it's going to make in a particular situation. So in some situations, it makes sense for you to yell when you're angry for some, in some situations, it makes sense for you to smile when you're angry. In some situations, it makes sense for you to stay completely still when you're angry. What your body does in each of these cases depends on what actions you're taking. So this means that anger is a category. It's a population of instances that are highly variable and your brain is able to select the one that, uh, that hopefully will be the, will be the the most effective one. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So what you what has evolved really is your capacity to learn how to make these uh, versions or varieties of anger and uh, how to select which is the one that uh, will be most beneficial um, in a particular situation. And you can also, you know, retool uh, how your brain um, you can reseed your brain to make different versions of an emotion or completely different emotions or try to tailor your emotions better to the particular situation. What evolution has endowed you with is the ingredients to make emotions, not to, they, it hasn't really endowed you with specific emotions themselves. Right. I'm trying to make sense of that. <laughs> I'll have to listen over this again. So if we've got uh, a a, bunch, a set of powerful ingredients um, within the brain, um, we can use them, mix them in a way to make, you know, the variety of different anger emotions that we choose. And, and um, based on the experience that we have in using them, um, the brain will be, you know, predicting to use them again for certain situations that might arise. That's right. And I guess what I would say is, you know, um, that, uh, that emotions are, are, part of the biological makeup of the human brain and body, right? Mm -hmm. So they are, but not because you have dedicated circuits for each one. Emotions are the result of evolution, but not because you have these baked in circuits that are passed down from, you know, ancestral animals. You experience emotions without conscious effort, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you're a passive recipient of these experiences. You, um, perceive emotions in other people without any kind of formal learning how to do it. But that doesn't mean that your emotions are innate or independent of your learning. What is innate is the, the, these ingredients in your brain and, and what they're doing. Yeah. And what they're essentially what your brain is doing is it's taking past experience and it's using them that past experience to form concepts for emotion on the fly. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so in a very real way, your brain is creating emotions kind of on the fly as you need them. And what this means is that uh, your um, the horizon of your control over your emotions is actually 
much broader than what you might imagine. So it's never going to be the case that you can snap your fingers and feel a different way. Trying to um, change how you feel in the moment is incredibly difficult. It's full of effort um, and it's really challenging. Mm. Um, but there are many things that you can do that um, will make it, first of all, easier for your brain to construct a more um, beneficial and adaptive and also um, to seed your brain with experiences so that your uh, that these new experiences in the present can be used in the future to automatically construct these emotions again. Okay. So for for younger kids, etc., um, that haven't had much experience, um, you know, with certain emotions, perhaps, is this something that we learn through observation and, and that experience then? Is that... Is that the, you know, for someone that's maybe hasn't been brought up in, a, in an environment that has a lot of anger in it, um, you know, where do they pick up anger from and how does that, uh, that connection, where is that connection made? Well, children learn concepts for emotion when they are growing up. And in, uh, so for example, with a small child, parents automatically label emotions in their children. Um, they, they actually are constructing emotions in their children without realizing that they're doing it. Mm -hmm. So for example, um, if you see your child taking a toy away from another child, you'll label that behavior in an, uh, usually in an emotional way. Um, and this is how children learn, uh, what their own, the own sensations from their bodies mean. It's by hearing, uh, other people label those, events as emotions. Um, but also we learn emotions from watching other people, from watching wow. other people talk about their emotions. Yeah. Um, and so we're, for children who grow up in a household where not a lot of emotion words are used, and in fact where uh, actions are labeled as physical states as opposed to emotional states. So, um, you know, um, so for example, if a child is um, told that they're hungry instead of angry or sad, they um, they learn to think about their bodies and understand the experience their bodies, the sensations from their bodies, as um, in very physical terms instead of in emotional terms. So they would have a hard time experiencing an emotion. They would be experiencing the aches and um, pains and so on in their bodies in, in a very physical way as physical symptoms. Somebody who grows up in a household where there are few emotion words used would, would have very, um, general, uh, very general feelings. They would have be low on what we call emotional granularity. Their experiences would be pretty general, like they might feel good or bad about something instead of being very specifically, uh, you know, frustrated or annoyed or, um, angry or, um, uh, or sad or, and so on. But, okay. so they're the but people kids, that we sort of see as, as more, uh, what do you call it? Flatlining or, um, very, very composed rather than sort of up and down. No, they could be very up and down, but they wouldn't, they wouldn't actually, ex they wouldn't experience those ups and downs as, um, emotional, they would experience them, uh, in some other way. So for example, um, when I'm not to keep using anger, but it's a, it's, a, it's just a particularly good one. Yeah. Um, good example, you know, you can experience anger as your reaction to the world, or you can experience anger as a property of somebody else. Like when someone cuts you off on the highway and mm. you your reaction is that guy's an asshole. Yeah, that's a very, mm. <laughs> yeah, that's very much an, um, an experience of anger, but it's an experience of anger where you don't, you're not aware of the anger. You're not, you're not, um, you don't own the anger to you. It feels as like, uh, the, uh, your, um, experience is it, actually, it's, it's not really your experience. It's the, you're just in the same way that when you, eat something, uh, and you say, well, that was delicious, or that's a beautiful painting, or that's a, a, a delicious drink. You're taking your own experience of something, but you're embedding it in to an external element. Yeah, exactly. Um, we do this with color all the time, right? We say, well, the apple is red, but you know, the apple isn't red. The apple is 
reflecting light from a certain wavelength that when it reacts with your visual system is experienced as red. But the redness isn't in the apple. It's actually in your brain. Um, you, the experience of redness is happening in the neurons in your brain. Um, and so in the same way, we sometimes attribute emotion to things that happen in the world when in fact it's our own, uh, our own experiences. So my point is that when you grow up in a household with a lot of emotion words, uh, you develop uh, a big vocabulary of emotion concepts and you have a brain that has the capacity to make many, many varieties of emotion, which is a really good thing um, because it allows you to be much more functional and adaptive in your life. But when so you grow up... Is that good in, for emotional intelligence? Yes, it is. Right. Mm -hmm. In fact... High, high emotional granularity is a core feature of emotional intelligence. So why, why is that a good thing? I mean, why is it good to have a good range of uh, emotional responses? Because emotions are the way that you make sense of what the sensations in your body mean, and they are prescriptions for action. So the more variety you have in the emotions that you can make, the more choices your brain has to tailor your re your behavior to the situation you know so if you just feel good or bad and you have no granularity to that feeling what does feeling bad mean i mean what does that tell you about what you need to do next it tells you nothing whereas if you are feeling irritated versus frustrated versus angry versus enraged each of those um you know has a each of those has a range of actions associated right. with it that right. allows you to be very effective in the situation that you're in. And frankly, that's what, you know, a lot of uh, scientists think emotions are for. They're for helping to guide your behavior. So they can really help us search deeper for that feeling, what it all means, where it comes from, the cause, and therefore help us uh, adapt a, a more suitable process going forward. Um, you know, if it's, if it's a sufferable emotion, for example, or if it's a good emotion, um, to, to go towards those as well. Exactly. And, you know, sometimes you want to cultivate an unpleasant emotion. Like, so if you've ever exercised, hmm. you know, um, you know, the, the, there's the saying, you know, the U S Marines have a saying, you know, pain is weakness, leaving the body. Um, uh, <laughs> you know, no pain, no gain kind uh. of thing. And so, uh, you know, sometimes you want to cultivate feeling unpleasant because it's, um, it's good for you. It's good for you to work hard when you're exercise, for example, and, um, working that hard, giving a lot of effort can feel really unpleasant at times. So sometimes feeling bad is good. Um, but sometimes it's to be avoided and you need to have a very flexible brain with a big vocabulary of experiences to draw on so that your brain can create the experiences and the, and guide your actions in the most appropriate way uh, for the situation that you're in. Okay. So really a, a higher emotional, um, I can't say that word, granule, granule, can you say that word? For Gran me? Yes, it's granularity, like granules. <laughs> granularity. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. So a, a high variety of granularity um, or responses there will help us, well, well, could help us potentially if we if we assess it correctly, um, lead a high quality of life? Absolutely. In fact, there's a lot of evidence to show that people who are higher in emotional granularity, who have more precise and flexible uh, emotions that they can make, actually cope better in their lives. They um, recover more quickly from illness and they have uh, better communications in their relationships with other people. So in general, it's a good thing, yeah. Okay. And is this something that we can develop? Absolutely. In fact, um, there are uh, training uh, procedures for kids in schools. So when you train children to become more emotionally granular, not only does their social behavior improve, their um, their academic performance also improves, so they do better in as well. The whole emotional climate of a classroom improves tremendously when the kids learn to be more emotionally granular. So this is something kids can learn. It's something adults can learn. And I talk about it in the book. I talk about ways to improve your emotional granularity. There are a number of specific suggestions for people if they want to try them out. Mm -hmm. Okay. Excellent. Uh, more reason to pick up the book. 
can you can you put it in um, a simplistic format for me? Because I know we've sort of we've gone off in tangents and and bounced around from idea to idea. Can you sort of put into a, a simple format the the how emotions are created, um, where they come from, and why it's important to understand that? Well, what I would say is that um, emotions are. Emotions really are are not your reactions to the world. Hmm. They are how you make sense of what is going on inside your own body in relation to the world. Emotions don't happen to you. Your brain makes them. You're not at the mercy of mythical emotion circuits that are buried deep inside your brain. You make emotions. Right. You, Your brain is... Um, uh, creating emotions as you need them. And once you learn how your brain does it, you can learn to harness that, those, those, um, that way of making emotion, you're, you can learn to harness it to improve your own emotional life. When you improve your own emotional life, when you become the architect of your experience in a more deliberate way, um, this it, can improve all sorts of aspects of your life. It can improve your performance at work. It can improve your relationships with your spouse. It can improve, you know, your uh, the rearing of your children. Um, it can actually, yeah. yeah and you know, surprise. It was surprising to me, but in fact, because in the book I talk about how the mind and the body are linked, not in some spiritual way, you know, but actually in a very biological way, I draw out what the biology is for how the brain, uh, how the mind uh, affects the body. And so the emotions that you experience that your brain is equipped to make can actually make you sicker or make you recover from illness, uh, faster. So there's a real concrete biological consequence of being able to manage your emotions more effectively by becoming a better architect of your own experience. Architects mm. have tools. This book explains to you what your tools are and how to get a bigger toolbox, really. Right. And I've heard a lot about that recently, how, how well the mind is connected to the body and um, how we, we can really influence uh, the shape of our health just just through that experience. Absolutely, you Which know, is one of the fascinating, really, isn't it? Yeah, one of the biggest discoveries in in science, I would say, in the last ten or twenty years, is that um, there are mental things like stress, for example, that can get under your skin and biologically embedded in how your brain and your body actually work. And uh, this is an imp it's important to understand in simple terms how this happens so that you have more control over what's happening in your own body. Yeah. So just with the emotions, I'm just trying to wrap my head around it. We, we obviously, our bodies um, sense the environment through, through the, the senses that we have. Um, and that is used in um, integration with, with our experience that, that's um, embedded in the brain, the data there, and then those together create the emotions based on how we, how we feel. Yeah, so think it? about it. That's, yeah, that's kind of it. I mean, the way I would, I would think about it kind of like this, that um, when you're in a particular situation, um, you might feel an ache in your stomach, for example, um, so what is that ache? Um, well, in certain situations, your brain is, is you know, your brain is, uh, when your brain is predicting that there's a, an ache, what could that ache be? Well, if it's around dinner time, that ache might be hunger. Yeah. If it's around flu season, that ache might be, you know, you're coming down with the flu. Um, if you're tired, if you didn't get much sleep, that ache could be fatigue. Mm. Um, but that ache might also be um, the longing uh, for, of missing someone that you love. That ache might be anxiety if you're in a doctor's office. That ache might be disgust at my daughter's birthday party. The point is that the, the sensations in your body in and of themselves don't have any psychological meaning. Your brain has to create the emotional meaning around those sensations by trying to guess at what is causing them in this particular situation. So it's doing that 
it's, you know, using the, the general brain networks, it's general networks to make, not only to predict that an ache is going to occur, but also what's the cause of that ache. And when you, that's really what an emotion is. It's an explanation for what is causing the sensations in your body in this particular situation that lets you know what to do about the, hmm. the, the feelings. Well, it's just awesome stuff. Um, and I can just reflect on something recently in the last sort of week, I've had this, this emotion of restlessness. Um, I'm assuming that's emotional. And, and I've, I've sitting, I've been sitting there in the lounge. I'm saying, geez, my legs feel very irritable. Um, I say that to my wife because in the past I've had these irritable legs where it feels like your legs just need to get up and get torn apart or, you know, moved very rapidly or something like that. I don't know if you've ever had that sort of experience. Um, but I can feel that sensation in my legs in particular. Um, but I'm just connecting it now within the last week. I've had this slight sense of restlessness that's um, been within me and I can't quite put my finger on what it is. But there's obviously a connection between that emotion that I've got um, and perhaps that that sensation in the body as well. Absolutely. So what I would say is the really cool thing about the way your brain works is that the feeling of um, jitteriness in your legs is actually in your head. Right. So when you pinch yourself on your skin, to you it feels as if the pinch is in your skin, but actually it's in your brain. Yeah. yeah. Right. Every everything you feel, you've, you everything you see, everything you taste, everything uh, you know that you smell is 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 in your brain. It's not actually in your body or or in the world. The sensations are occurring in your brain, and that's exactly right. Your brain is. Um, trying to make sense of what those sensations are. And so it may be that the, the, um, the jitteriness in your, um, legs, your brain is, that's coming from the, the sensory input from your legs, your brain is, uh, creating a sense of, um, of, uh, restlessness, uh, a feeling of restlessness from those, um, from those sensations. Mm. But why my legs? <laughs> like why? Why does it always seem to be my legs? I mean, there's got to be something to do with the flow of, of, you know, circulation or something. I don't know. Well, you know, what's interesting is that different people have uh, different zones of their body that uh, that they're particularly sensitive to. So for you, it's your legs. For somebody else, it's their heart. For somebody else, it's, right. you know, their uh, their lungs, their breathing. It, it different and that's a that's something that right now that you know scientists are trying to understand, and it's not something that we understand particularly well, really. I would say. So I, yeah. I could use this then as as an indication when I get that sort of jitteriness in my legs, um, because I didn't make the connection until we we're speaking right now. Um, but I have felt that sort of sense of restlessness, that emotion there, that's going. You know, what is this? Because I meditate regularly, and um, that's one thing that's been coming up to me. I've just been going, well, what is this? Why do I feel restless? I can't figure out what in my life is is not quite right because recently I've been really, really happy um, and everything's going pretty smoothly. But um, perhaps I could use that then as a sensation to say, hey, something's not quite right um, and then seek out where the, what, what the error might be um, that's not quite aligning with, with my brain's predicting of the future. Well, that may be it. That, or Is maybe, that uh, no, not at all. But I think maybe it's the case that your brain is constructing restlessness out of this um, jitteriness in your legs and that in fact the jitteriness in your legs has nothing to do with you being restless it may have some other cause right. so mm. um you know uh for example we can distinguish humans can distinguish between discomfort and distress right so um there's a part of experiencing pain for example is the discomfort that comes from you know tissue damage you know you pull a muscle let's say um but part of pain is also your distress over that discomfort. And it's very, with meditation and mindfulness, for example, it's very possible to distinguish between distress and to separate the distress from the discomfort and, and only, and really turn the dial down on the distress so that all you feel is discomfort. And when you do this, rather than having them sort of combined to make them perhaps worse than they are. and when you do this uh, with people, it reduces their uh, opiate uh, intake. They they take fewer drugs, right? Because people are taking opiates to um, quell the distress that they have. Um, it doesn't actually work on the actual discomfort very much. Yeah. So 
Mm. Um, or, you know, you can wake up in the morning and you can feel, um, you know, pretty agitated and it, and for most of us, you know, we live lives where it's pretty, we ask ourselves, gee, why are we feeling agitated? And we can come up with a lot of reasons, but you know, maybe you had an argument with someone, maybe there's something that's about to happen in your day, uh, that is, uh, worrisome and so on. And so it's really easy to take these sensations and blow them up into big emotional events. But it's also possible that you're feeling a little jittery because you just didn't sleep very well. And then it's a, just, it's a physical, uh, the sensations are coming from a purely physical uh, cause. Yeah. So, so another way of uh, managing your emotions is to ask yourself, you know, am I really feeling, uh, do I really have to construct an emotion here or can I just really experience this as a physical sensation? To put it another way, you know, when you're in a situation where you're not predicting very well, uh, you tend to feel uh, highly aroused and jittery. Uh, or when you're in a situation where there's a lot of ambiguity, um, you can uh, feel aroused. I don't mean aroused in a sexual way, but I mean in a, like feel yeah, yeah. jittery. Mm. Now, when you, most people will construct anxiety out of that. Yeah. Uh, but it's also possible to construct determination, to construct ex excitement. Um, when my daughter was uh, training for her black belt when she was 12 years old. Her grant, the, her master, the grand master of the dojo she worked at, uh, was working out at, would say to the kids um, before a test, get your butterflies to fly in formation. Yeah. And really what he was telling them is, don't treat this jittery feeling as, a, as anxiety. Treat it as um, your, you know, construct the meaning of it to be uh, that your body is ramping up for a big, uh, you know, exertion. And it turns out that when you take people, for example, who suffer from test anxiety and you teach them how to reconceptualize the meaning of this arousal, that you teach them to understand it differently, to construct a different emotion with it, it doesn't change the level of arousal they experience. It's still high but it actually allows them to perform better on math tests and they actually graduate from college when mm. otherwise they, they would have dropped out. Okay. Very, very interesting stuff. So we, yeah, I mean, again, I don't want to go too deep into this any further, but um, we could use that, that emotion that we're feeling to assess, you know, the source and what's going perhaps wrong or where the error might be. And, but we could also use it to, in, in a different way, that's more conducive for a more positive outcome or direction in life. You bet. Cool. Are there any, um, I just want to, I want to run into these other questions. Are there any techniques or tips that you want to give us perhaps from your book that um, people could use to be, become more mindful or connected with their emotions? Well, there, there are two chapters full of suggestions in my book. Um, but, uh, one thing that I would say is, um, if you want to become more granular, you want to become, mm. um, better, uh, have your emotions be better attuned to the situation that you're in. You can learn new emotion words. Um, turns out that learning new emotion words, words for emotions in other cultures that we don't have in our own culture, for example, um, are are like ingredients that you can use to um, to ride, widen your rep repertoire of emotions that your brain can make. Wow. Another thing that you can do is you can cultivate new experiences deliberately in the moment. You can cultivate experiences of gratitude or of awe, um, experiences of wonder or of curiosity. And uh, what this does is it seeds your brain for making new predictions in the future because what you experience today you know, become the seeds for new predictions in the future. So these are just two examples okay. uh, of, of many things that you can do to, um, to, to become a better architect of your own experience. Okay, so rather than just using sad as the emotion, we could go in there online, do a Google search for other words of sadness um, and, and learn those. Um, Absolutely. Help us. Okay, that's cool. And, and the second one, I had a point on the second one. Um, oh, how to use that experiment uh, experience. So is, is that sort of, you know, if you're feeling some sort of emotion arising, is just to shock the system, do something dramatically different that will sort of um, shock, shock the, the brain into learning a different, a different process? 
You can, but it doesn't necessarily have to involve shock. You can be quite deliberate in your cultivating new experiences that then your brain can use in the future in a very automatic way. So for example, you know, um, one of the best ways to, for example, to uh, regulate yourself out of a uh, an unpleasant emotion is to get up move your body, walk around, go for a walk outside and find something to, to, to appreciate, you know, find something, uh, you know, like for example, when I'm, uh, when I go out for a walk in the middle of the day, um, I can feel awe at the, at watching weeds push up, you know, in a crack in the sidewalk that yeah. can be, uh, an experience of the, you know, awesome power for example um oh, it's or that pattern really i mean not, not so much in a shocking sort of way but just breaking what typically you might do with a certain emotion so if you're sad you might you know curl up in, inside and close all the curtains and i don't know watch i don't know what's a good show for sadness I mean, whatever it might be uh, and eat tubs of ice cream rather than do that you might do something totally different to to find a, a different uh, way to express that emotion Exactly. And what's interesting is that in the future, your brain will then, ha if you do it enough times, it's kind of like driving, you know, if you, when you first start learning to drive, it's all very deliberate. You have to put on a lot of effort. You have to concentrate on a lot of things, but eventually become very automated at driving so that, uh, you know, you can talk to people while you're driving. You can listen to the radio while you're driving. You can sing a song while you're driving. Yeah. And in much the same way, if you cultivate, let's say, gratitude and awe, at the beginning, it can feel very deliberate. It can feel like it requires a lot of effort. But then if you do it enough times, your brain can learn to do it pretty automatically. And so mm. uh, when you're feeling low and let's say you're feeling sad, you want to regulate yourself out of that, your brain can automatically find something search for something in the immediate, right. uh, you know, surroundings to feel grateful about or to feel wonder over or curiosity or awe. All of these things are, um, are, can be like habits that yeah. your brain develops yeah. to get you out of a, out of a funk pretty, pretty quickly. It's good stuff. I, I just, I remembered hearing something way back, um, you know, about, you know, if you slam your finger in, in a door or something like that, um, rather than respond, which would be, ah, damn it, and you'd get angry or agitated, uh, is to maybe do a little whistle or sing a little song or jump up and down. Um, just simple things like that might be um, enough to, uh, change, to change how that emotion might typically make us feel. Absolutely. In a simple example. Lisa, it's been fantastic. Guys, you can check out Lisa's book and pick up a copy. Um, head to thehiddenwhy.com. I'll stick the links to Lisa's website plus the book in, in the show notes there, thehiddenwhy.com. How Emotions Are Made sounds like a fantastic read. Lisa, I'm only a few chapters into it, but um, you've given us a lot of value here today. So guys, just want to encourage you to check that out and pick up a copy yourself, have a read of it. I'm sure there's some great benefits that can come from understanding how our emotions are made. Lisa, I want to run into some quick final questions. Have you got a moment more to uh, go through these? Just a couple, absolutely. Okay, sweet as. So the first one is, uh, do you have any rituals or routines that you believe contribute to your success? To my success? Yeah. Well, I can tell you that I think some of my success is uh, attributable to um, being slightly more optimistic than I ought to be. So I have <laughs> scientists talk about, uh, you know, uh, the optimal margin of illusion, which means I am optimistic about the my ability to get things done, kind of overly optimistic, um, which I never get as much done as I think I will. But I almost always get more done than other people um, who are more pessimistic. So I think that's one, um, okay. that's a good one, one thing. Does that uh, lead I you think, to frustration sometimes? Absolutely. <laughs> sure <laughs> does. Um, okay. I think that, uh, another thing which, uh, contributes to my success is that, um, you're, I'm going to sound more like a mom here than I, uh, do like a neuroscientist, but I'm actually speaking to you here like a neuroscientist. Uh, I get it. I try to get enough sleep. Uh, I try to eat properly, uh, and, um, get enough exercise because, um, the, the feelings that come from your body that make it hard for you, um, to keep your emotions in balance and cause you a lot of distress actually come from not sleeping enough, uh, not, uh, eating properly and not getting enough exercise. So, uh, that's something that it turns out it's a very worthwhile investment and, uh, direct link, for example, like people sometimes say to me, if there's one thing that you could do that would, um, you know, I, one thing I can do that would change my emotional life, what would it be? And I, my answer is 
get enough sleep. It turns out sleep is incredibly important for keeping your body in your body systems in balance. And when they're out of balance, that's when you're going to feel like crap, you know? Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And then the other thing that I do, um, to, I think to foster success, uh, is I just remain really curious about things. Mm. Um, and I, I try to be very, uh, you know, it's always easier to be uh, gentle and compassionate with other people. It's much harder to be that way with yourself. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I try really hard. I sometimes fail quite dramatically, but, yeah. um, but I do try really hard. And for things that um, feel really bad, you know, I try instead of feeling really down on myself, I try just to be curious and try to learn something, um, turn it into something educational instead of berating myself over, you know, how I could have performed better. Yeah, absolutely. Good advice. What advice would you give your 20 year old self? What a great question. I think the advice, honestly, the advice I would give my 20 year old self is you should have slept more. Um, I think I was Hmm. sleep deprived for maybe the first 15 years of my adult life. Um, uh, I would say get enough sleep and, um, just have faith that it's all going to work out. And what is your meaning of success? You know, that's a, you're asking me these awesome questions. Um, my meaning, my feeling, you know what my greatest, uh, my greatest, my greatest accomplishment, honestly, is that I have an 18 year old daughter who still really likes to be around me. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Yeah. Yep. Cool. I like it. And what's your number one piece of productivity advice? Have a schedule. Don't multitask and have a schedule. I've just written an article with both those things. Um, Yeah, absolutely. What What advice would you give someone that's needing or wanting to make a change in their life? Well, I think it depends on what change they want to make, but, um, I would say uh, you really can be the architect of your own experience. You can architect your life in a way that allows it to improve in whatever way you want it to. You just have to make sure that your toolbox is filled with the tools that you need. So, uh, you know, read my book. (laughs) (laughs) Good place to start. What's your favorite food? Oh, well... You know, I was just having a conversation with someone about this the other day. I love dark chocolate and I also love fried, any kind of fried potato. Um, so I can't, you know, if you were stuck on a desert island and you could only have one, which one would you choose? Mm. Yeah. Um, I, dark chocolate. No, potato probably. <laughs> I know, right? It's really hard. I think it just depends on the mood that I'm in. But, uh, but I really love, um, I really love chocolate uh, and I really love, um, I really love uh, French fries. Yeah. yeah. Cool. What is your favorite leisure activity? Lying on the beach and reading a novel. Good. Do you have a favorite novel or book that you'd like to recommend? We'll stick yours in the show notes so people can pick up a copy using the link there. Um, is there another one that you'd like to recommend? Wow. Um, um, uh, nonfiction or fiction? Nonfiction, if you've got one, but either. Nonfiction. Um, wow, I have a lot of books that I maybe one you've read that I really that like. Top of mind. Yeah. Um, let me think. I. Well, I'm reading a book right now. It's called um, "The Island of Knowledge." Yeah. It's a it's a book about what what you can and can't learn from science. Okay. Yeah. Who's that by? Do you know? Uh, March. I don't actually, it's Marcello. Um, he's at Dartmouth. Um, yeah, I'll look it up guys. I'll stick that in the show notes along with Lisa's book too. So, uh, make sure you get yourself a copy of those and a favorite quote, Lisa, do you have one? A favorite quote. Um, I do have many quotes that I, well, what, <laughs> what that I like is, um, uh, actually, um, 
I have a lot of different quotes that I that I really like, but um, me too. I have to start writing yeah. on the wall. So yeah, <laughs> but um, yeah, I think one quote that I like is from William Faulkner. Um, it, it's a line from one of uh, his books, uh, which says, "The past is never dead. It's not even the past." The past is never dead. It's not even the past. Right, meaning your past is your present. You're, you're reliving your present without even realizing it. Wow. Deep stuff. And do you believe we all have a why? Do I believe we all have a what? A why, a reason, a purpose. I think we have more than one purpose, one yeah. why. Yeah, I think if you only have one why, your life can be pretty unidimensional. I think most of us have more than one why, and um, and that's what gives our lives rich meaning. Okay, and what does living life with passion and purpose mean to you? Well, I think it means being a scientist and helping uh, to explain how your brain creates your mind and providing people with um, scientific evidence that they can use in their everyday lives. I think, and I think it, it's being a good mom and a good wife and a good friend. Beautiful. Well answered, Lisa, you've shared so much value on this episode. Um, very in-depth uh, at times, I'm sure it's, it's worth listening to it a second time. Um, but I've got some great takeouts from this as well, and I'm sure the audience will. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for taking the time out. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on your show. It's been an absolute pleasure. Guys, check it all out. The show notes at thehiddenwire.com, episode 396 with Lisa Feldman Barrett. That's it from me. Thank you, Lisa. We'll talk again. Take care. Thanks, guys. Until next time, peace, passion, and Thanks, guys, for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed what you heard. I hope you love what you're hearing. If you like this episode, guys, or any of the episodes that you're listening to here at The Hidden Why, please do me a favor by sharing it. You can share it with your families. You can share it with your loved ones. You can do that by using your favorite social media channels using the icons on the platform that you're listening to The Hidden Why podcast. Also, guys, if you're a fan of the show, please connect with me. Connect with me at thehiddenwide.com. I love to hear from you. I love to converse with the people that listen to this show to find out what they enjoy, what they don't enjoy, and perhaps if they have any questions or feedback for the show as well. You can stay up to date with all that I'm releasing here, guys. I do a solo show every Monday, a three-minute thought every Thursday. I do two interviews a week on a Wednesday and a Saturday, and a book review every Friday. You can stay up to date with all that by subscribing to my newsletter at thehiddenwire.com. Just enter your email address there, and also subscribing to the podcast on the platform that you choose to listen to your podcasts. You can also support the show, guys, by using the Amazon links at thehiddenwire.com. So if you like books, you can get all the books that I review there um, and anything else, really, that you like to purchase through Amazon. So use that link. It helps support the show. And we've also got a deal with Audible, guys. Audible is a fantastic way to listen to all your favorite books. We've got a deal with them so you can get two free books when you subscribe or, yeah, subscribe to a 30-day free trial. So check that out, again, at thehiddenwire.com. Guys, that's it from me. You know what to do. Go out there. Breathe more passion into every single moment. Do everything with greater purpose and in doing so you will discover your hidden why this is the hidden why my name is lee martin Lutzi. until next time peace passion and purpose see you soon